Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, we remember December 7th, 1941, and the attack on Pearl Harbor. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be visiting with Lou Conter, a survivor of the attack on the USS Arizona. He'll tell you what he remembers about that day, the shipmates he lost, and what his life has been like ever since. Plus, we'll talk to Dr. Ken Alford about how you can find your World War II ancestors. Where are the records? Where's the best place to go? And how can you save some money? He'll have all those answers for you. This week on Extreme Genes, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out and yes it is the holidays but it's also pearl harbor weekend and i can't believe it's been 78 years since the bombing of pearl harbor and uh, going back into our archives i just felt it was really important today to dig up my visit with lou conter lou is one of the survivors of the uss arizona from that day that Roosevelt said would live in infamy, and he is now 97 years old. We interviewed him back when he was 94, and you can hear his entire story of what happened that infamous Sunday morning. And then after that, we're going to talk to Dr. Ken Alford. He's going to explain how you can find some records of your World War II ancestors, and he's got a lot of great sources. Some of them cost, some of them don't. You'll want to hear what he has to say. Right now, off in Boston, standing by, it's the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. It's David Allen Lambert. How are you, my friend? Great. How are you doing on this momentous anniversary of something very tragic, but changed the course of American history? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm in the middle of it right now because I've been uh, tracking down a couple of uncles. One served in the Pacific, the other served in the Atlantic, and I just got the Pacific Vets records, and they are so detailed. It even had a photo of him when he enlisted, and it just gave me all the battles he was in. Okinawa, Guadalcanal, the Battle of Midway, I mean, on and on and on, and it's just an amazing thing with a lot of detail, and I recommend to anybody who's interested in their World War II Navy vet to get a hold of those personal records. It's just incredible. Well, you know, it's funny when you talk about World War II, and of course, we have, I think pretty much everyone in America either knows somebody who was in World War II or is a descendant of a World War II veteran. Over in the Netherlands, there is a gentleman who's a researcher, has worked for quite a while to track down what happened to the family of a Second World War veteran from Beverly, Alberta. And this Alexander Seredek is a person who's buried over there who died in World War II. And he tracked down the family in Alberta and there's a great story on it, talking about how Europeans are working to try to get in touch with the family that never got to bring their son home. That's a great story. And they're taking care of the grave over there, too, I understand it. That is exactly what they're doing. Well, you know, I'll tell you, a lot of times we find these great little family mysteries, but how about if it's found by somebody else? And this is the case of Robert Kennedy, who was tearing down a college hall in Montclair State University in New Jersey. A message in a bottle from 1907 was found. I know you found the story, too, and I understand you researched it a little bit, and you tracked down some of the family. Yeah, it's funny because the story says Montclair State's been researching this for, like, months to find out about the descendants of these two people who built this brick wall in 19. 
1907. And it didn't take me long to find out that there was actually somebody on Ancestry who had a family tree that included one of them. And it turns out the family moved to Ohio. So I've reached out to them to let them know that uh, there was a family memento that is waiting out there. And Montclair State is anxious to find the descendants of these two guys. The other one, according to what I could see, doesn't have any descendants. We can always find them behind those brick walls, can't yep, we? Yep, <laughs> literally. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, I think in genealogy, I mean, I love postcards uh, because, you know, if you find a place that your family came from. But there was a researcher named Alfonso Garbeo, who's been a big-time postcard collector. He tracked down postcards sent by William G. Rohrer of New Jersey back to his family, and one of them has a Babe Ruth connection. But I think the fun part is he decided to give the collection to the family. Yeah, these cards go back to 1923 all the way to uh, 1947. They found the family that included the daughter of the recipient of these postcards and her grandson. And so the, the kid plays baseball. He's a middle school student, and he just can't believe he's got a postcard written by his great-great-grandfather talking about seeing Babe Ruth in action hitting a triple in 1923. Wow, that's amazing. Well, one of the people that could have seen Babe Ruth hit a triple or a home run has passed away, and that is someone who was on a baseball team in a little place called Mount Rushmore. In fact, the builder of Mount Rushmore saw this young man, asked him to be on the ball team, and then later gave him a job, and that's when Don Nick Clifford worked from 1938 to 1940. Now, unfortunately, he just passed away at the end of November at the age of 98. And he was the last one, too, right? The last carver of Mount Rushmore. He was, in fact, the last known carver. No one's come forward and has said that they've also worked on it. So that closes the door. And you were just there yourself, not Yeah, just last year. Absolutely. I saw pictures of that baseball team. Well, the next person I'm going to talk about, just a really quick birthday wish to Mary Pratt of Quincy, Massachusetts, 101. She was on the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League from 1943 to 47. You may have seen a movie that was inspired by their story, A League of Their Own. Well, you know, I think I have time for this story, uh, and that is when Standard Time was adopted in November of 1883. And before that, we didn't have a Standard Time. Isn't that interesting? Different states, different localities had different ways of doing the time, and this is when the time zones were created. It's a great article about the history of it and what happened the day the times were all standardized across the continent. I'm sure it's still probably confusing people. And now there's even talk about getting rid of daylight savings time. In a lot of places. I'd like to keep it year-round myself, but, you know, that's just my opinion. So there you go. And you can see this article, by the way. It's linked to on our website, ExtremeGenes.com. All right, David. Thank you so much. And, of course, this is the week where we remember what happened on December 7th, 1941, the day President Roosevelt said would live in infamy, and indeed it has And there are still heroes among us who lived through that day, and I'm very pleased and honored to have on the phone with me right now one of those heroes, Lou Conter. And Lou is in Grass Valley, California, 94 years young. How are you, Lou? Fine. Thank you. Take us back to that day, because most of us weren't even alive at the time that happened, yet alone have the ability to remember. Give us a little background about your time in the military and what brought you to Hawaii at that time. Well, I went aboard the Arizona in Long Beach in the end of 1939 after three months of boot camp in San Diego. The fleet was uh, anchored in Long Beach at the time. 
I went to the second division and Mexico came back to the second division and then I was transferred into the quartermaster gang for navigation training and then on April 1st of 1940 the fleet left Long Beach and went to Honolulu or Pearl Harbor and then after the exercise were done uh, they based the fleet permanently in, in Pearl Harbor instead of Long Beach and so then we operated from April 1st on half the fleet would go out for 10 days and then come back in and then up to the end of 1940, we went to Bremen for overhaul for uh, three, two and a half months and came back to Honolulu on the 1st of January of 1941. So you enlisted then during the time of the Depression, I yes? Yeah, out of high school. A lot of people did that at that time, didn't they, because of the economic yeah. situation? Well, you know, we went in the Navy for four years. We got $17 a month for the first three months, and then $21 a month to we made seamen second class, and then $36, but we had board and room, too, and had hammocks that we slept in. We had a hook in the beams in the ship, and we slept in hammocks until after we went to overhaul, and they put bunks in four high, and of course, a lot of the guys would rather stayed in their hammocks then they got used to it. You got three guys sleeping underneath you or something. But, uh, wow. Did you anticipate at the time that you enlisted that you might wind up going to war during those four years, or was it just, hey, here's a way to make a living? Well, no, I think that there was half and half at the time in 38, 39, but then <clears throat> after we went to Pearl Harbor in April of 40, we all knew that we were going to go to war, but we just didn't know when. Mm-hmm. And it was just a matter of time because, you know, we operated up and down the 180th Meridian, and we couldn't cross it because we had 14-inch guns aboard the battleships. And when the Japanese came across in the northern Pacific on December the 4th with their battleships and carriers, there was really an act of war on the 4th of December instead of waiting until the 7th because they crossed the 180th without permission and under silence. Hmm. That was the date, December 4th, that President Roosevelt got the message from the embassy in Jakarta that the uh, Japanese fleet had gone to sea and they had sent the message, East Wind Rain, which meant that Pearl Harbor was to be attacked within 72 hours. Now, what were you doing that day? December 7th, 1941, you're a young kid. You're what, 20 years old at that point? 20, 20 years old. I was uh, just took over quartermaster of the Watts. When we were in port, we're quartermaster of the watches on the quarterdeck down by where the gangplanks are going over to the vessel and over the liberty boats and when they run at sea it's up on the bridge with the captain because the quartermasters do the navigation and star sights and keep the logs and things like that so our station was between turret three and the mainmast and you were on the arizona the morning of the attack Yes, when they first came over on the quarterdeck, we sounded general quarters, and the band was getting ready to play for colors of five minutes to eight, and as soon as we sounded general quarters, they went to their battle stations, and they were all killed, the same as all of my quartermaster buddies were killed, and five minutes later, I, I would have been on the bridge with the captain, but he said to secure the quarterdeck first, so we had to throw the lines off from the Arizona to the Vestal, get the Vestal away from us so we could get underway and get to sea, because... We had just come in on Friday, and we had refueled, and we had a full load of fuel and ammunition and everything else, and we had to get the vessel away from us to get away from the docks. 
Right. And so you were on the ship at that point. Of course, it was a panicked situation. Everybody knew it was the Japanese. And like Commander Fuqua said after the raid in his official statements, that everyone on the ship performed extraordinarily well. And there was no one individual that outlasted the other one. Because we were well trained. We'd been to sea, you know, for uh, since April 1st, 1940, practically two years. Mm-hmm. And all we did to sea was train for war with Japan. Right. In the Pacific. And so we were well trained, and everybody acted when uh, they went to their stations immediately. It took us 50 years to get off of the news reports and everything that the band had played in the Battle of Bands the night before, which they did not. There were a few people of the band over there watching them, but they did not play. They were going to play the following week or week after that. And the newspapers said that they were allowed to sleep in that morning. They got killed in their bunks, and none of them were killed in their bunks. They were all at their battle stations. Everybody was at their battle station by three minutes to eight. We sounded general quarters at five minutes to eight, and it doesn't take them two to three minutes to get to their battle stations and secure all the watertight doors and everything else. And so for you that day, this attack came along. You're below deck, so you escaped harm while all your buddies were lost. We were on top of the deck uh, between two or three and four on the quarter deck, and that's why we were, everybody below deck practically got killed, except a few, and um, we got out of turret four. Everybody else that survived was above decks and in turret three or four, and then there were five men on the foremast above the bridge, the fire controlman, after the blast that Vestal threw a line across to them, and they came down the line, and Three of them got over to the vessel, burned about 75% of their body, and the other two dropped into the water. How did you escape, Lou? Well, uh, you you never know how you escape. You're just lucky that you didn't get killed that day, too. But we were on the quarterdeck, and when Commander Fuqua got knocked out with a bomb over by turret four, and he came through and took charge. And he was our senior officer aboard, our first lieutenant. Had the people coming out of the fire, we laid them down on the deck to save him, to get him into the motor launches to the hospital. And then water started coming up on the deck, and he said, abandoned ship. It was about 25 to nine or something, and he said that. The ones that survived got over the side and into Fort Island, or else they got into the motor launches. And then we got in the motor launch and picked up bodies and parts of bodies out of the water because the whole fleet was burning. And we fought the fire on the Arizona until Tuesday. And they got out, and we took a rest for three or four days, and then we started diving on the ship to try to bring up bodies. And after five or six days, we were in shallow water helmets, and Pete Uzar was our main diver, was a water tender first. And he dove in a regular suit and stayed down four, five, six hours, and we'd stay down maybe 30, 40 minutes is all in the water, shallow water helmet, somebody pumping air in the deck. Right. But after... Five or six days, why uh, Pete decided it was too dangerous. We were getting the air hoses caught on the doors and everything else. And so they called it off. We abandoned ship, and that was it. The survivors went to other ships from base force, went to other ships, to destroyers and everything. It was able to go to sea. I went to Commander Base Force, and Captain Geiselman, who was our executive officer, was made provost marshal in Honolulu because martial law was declared immediately without an environmental impact report or any other hearings, and the military took over, and Captain Geisman was appointed provost marshal, and uh, he called Pete and I in to patrol the streets and help. And anybody in Honolulu, after sunset, was restricted from going out or before sunrise or they get shot. 
Wow. And so I lasted there until first part of January. We had our orders, John, Johnson's and Fitzgerald's, and I had our orders to flight school November the 1st, and Captain Valkenberg called us down and said, we're going back to Long Beach to pick up our 1.1 December the 19th, so you go back with us and go to Pensacola from there. But we lost our orders on the Arizona December 7th, so it was about the first week in January when I was over Hitchcock's house for dinner, and Admiral Calhoun came in and said, I thought you went to flight school, and I told him we lost our orders. And it wasn't three or four days they pulled Johnny off a destroyer and myself, and we were on the Lurling back to uh, San Francisco and went to Pensacola to flight school. As He was a gunner's mate, and I was a quartermaster second class. Now let's, let's talk about how this has affected your life. You were 20 years old at the time. I mean, you were just a kid. Obviously, it was a horrific thing, and I'm sure that it was more painful as you looked back on it. Talk about that a little bit, how that impacted you and your ability to function going forward through the war and since. Well, we handled it the way we were trained. We had high, hard training on site, and we handled it that way, and that's the way we had to do it. We knew we had to win the war and go, so we did what we had to do. And like Lauren Bruner was on the Arizona and he lives in La Mirada now, he's 95. And he was one of the ones who came off the foremast and was burned over 75% of his body. Mm. They put him to the hospital until July of 42, and he was pretty well then. And they said, you're well to go back to duty, and they put him in a destroyer, and he didn't see the United States till January 1946. Don Stratton, who was on the Arizona, got burned, in, and he spent two years in the hospital, and he came out with a medical. But he's still living in Colorado Springs, too. And John Anderson is our senior petty officer aboard. He's a boatswain mate, and he's 99 now. And his twin brother was killed in the Arizona. So uh, they have different thoughts, you know. Sure. And uh, I've learned in survival the will to live, and you've got to be positive thinking all the time, and the will to live. He's Lou Conter. He's a veteran of World War II, survived the Arizona, and being shot down over the Pacific. Sir, we thank you for your service. Thank you for your time and sharing your story with everybody. And we wish you well through your current trial with your wife's illness. Thank you very much. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm still just taking all of it in that we just heard from Lou Conter about surviving the Japanese attack on the Arizona at Pearl Harbor back on December 7th, 1941. And with that, I think it makes a lot of sense to bring on Dr. Ken Alford. He is a professor at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, to talk about researching your World War II ancestors. So many of them, I think now, Ken, are gone more than are still with us. Where do we start if we want to research our World War II ancestor? The great news is World War II was documented from beginning to end. And so listeners that have ancestors and relatives that fought in World War II are bound to find something. Uh, unlike other wars, this is probably the best documented war we've got. And, and everything is available is the good news. When you start, what you want to do is there's four key pieces of information that you want to find on your veteran. And you may not find them all in the same place. You may not find them all at the same time. But these are the four things you want first. You want to know which branch of service they were in. Second is you want to find out generally their periods of service. And you want to find out where they served. You know, were they in the Pacific? Did they stay stateside? Did they go into Europe? Were they in North Africa? And then fourth, you want to know, how did they serve? What was their rank? Were they enlisted, non-commissioned officer, some kind of sergeant? Or did they serve as a warrant officer or even as a commissioned officer? Because it turns out the higher the rank, the more records you're going to find is just kind of the relationship. That makes there. sense, sure. 
Then once you do that, a lot of people think that military records are just kind of, oh, all homogenous. But there are many different kinds of records. And interestingly, especially for World War II, there are military records for people that didn't serve in the military. And I know that sounds a little bit weird, but actually what happened is it was a period of the draft in which the draft was extended very broadly. So most male ancestors will have some kind of draft registration record. And that's the first category of these records. They're called pre-service records. Okay. They're records created by the government, and the people may or may not serve. And so draft registration records, for example, my grandfather never served in World War II. He was too old, and they didn't take the draft that high, but he was in the age group where they had to register. So we've got his registration records, and they contain a wealth of information. I mean, including eye color, hair color, and height. Right. And so they're just wonderful records. The other kind of pre-service records are the documents that actually turn someone from a civilian into a soldier or a sailor or a Marine. They're enlistment documents for non-commissioned officers and enlisted, and they are commissioning documents for the officers because there are many different commissioning sources, such as ROTC, officer candidate school, direct commissions, and and so on. So those are all kind of pre-service records. The second category of records is what are called service records. And as the name implies, these are records that are generated while the people are on active duty. And there can be just a host of records, depending on how long they served, where they served, if they received awards, the orders that transferred them. And eventually, if there's discharge papers or if they were captured, all of those kinds of records are kept by the government because they're all official. That's exciting, though, to know that that's out there. The third category of records is, as you would expect, if there's a pre-service, there's going to be post-service. Post-service records contain things like a killed-in-action records or a separation or discharge because no matter when you serve or how long you serve, at some point you will leave the service, either through death or through some kind of separation or discharge. The government documents that in forms. Everyone that also served gets something called a Form DD-214, and that DD-214 is a record of your military service. It's family history gold. Because what it has in just two pages is a summary of the entire service of that service member. If you only get one document from a family member who served in World War II, you want to search for that DD-214. Oh, that's good to know. Another great piece of documentation, and it's not going to be nearly as concise, (laughs) are pension papers. Yes. Because when you receive a check from the government, they're going to require a huge amount of documentation. And you can also find things in pension papers like vital record information, complete spelling of names, military units, description of service, including campaigns and battles and awards, their physical description, a description of their health, where they lived, who their heirs are. I mean, it's just... Wonderful. And and that really applies to most wars of the United States. The pension records are fabulous. It does indeed. So where do you look for this information? You know, you know what you want, and you're just not sure where Grandpa served. I would recommend that listeners simply start with the obvious choices of Ancestry.com and Fold3.com. They have digitized a lot of government records, and that's the one shop where they will find more in the quickest amount of time than any of these other websites I'm going to give you. And so start there. Next, I would actually do a search for your local newspapers. 
if you know where grandpa or great-grandpa lived and went into the service from, there was probably a newspaper article generated at the time. And so many of them are digitized now on places like MyHeritage, Newspapers.com, GenealogyBank.com, also chronicling America through the Library of Congress. Absolutely. And, and many states have taken the bull by the horns and have digitized state newspapers. For right. example, for listeners that live in the state of Utah, there's a website called Utah Digital Newspapers that has many, many newspaper archives, and they're just wonderful. And they're all free. The federal government, as you would expect, since they collect all this stuff, has started making it available. It's not all digital yet, but much of it is. Let me just give your listeners some of these websites and places that I would send them to for the next round. After you've found everything you can find at Ancestry and Fold3, then go to the federal sources. I would go first to the National Archives. Right. If you go to their website, it's just archives.gov, and they have a huge wealth of information. Much of it is digitized. You can obtain these microfiche and microfilm through genealogical centers across the nation. And if you're in Washington, D.C., I highly recommend a visit to the National Archives. It's free, but you can actually hold your grandfather's records in many cases in your hand. Wow. And that's and then you can make a copy of them there. And that's just something fun. And that's a thrill in itself, isn't it? It is a huge thrill. The next thing I would recommend is to check the National Personnel Records Center, the NPRC, at St. Louis. And you can actually yep. find it through a link off of the National Archives website. Now, the good news is if your ancestors' records are there, you will receive a folder, and there are small charges that apply. But I have seen some of these that are two and three inches thick of just genealogical gold. That's the good news. The bad news is in 1973, a fire destroyed mm-hmm. 80% of their records. Yeah. And most of the World War II records, I, I just hate to say this, were, were burned. But you always try. The next place I would check is the Veterans Administration. That's va.gov. And then I would send them also to the Library of Congress, and that's just loc.gov. And the Library of Congress will not have records, but they will have photos and unit histories. And you may find grandpa or great-grandpa in those secondary sources. I would also encourage your listeners to go to state archives and local military museums. And lastly, I would just add before we close this off that since this is World War II, this is now really the first war in American history where we have sizable numbers of women who serve in either the waves or the WACs or in auxiliary corps, and there are millions of female records as well. I wish we had more time, Ken. This is fabulous. So helpful for a lot of people. If you missed this, of course, listen again on the podcast in the coming week, and you can find out all kinds of things to write down about how to track down your World War II ancestor. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Alford. Thank you very much. And it is time once again for Ask Us Anything. And David Allen Lambert is back from NEHGS to field this question along with me. We're going to start out with this one today, David. It's from Donna McLean in Ontario, Canada. And she emails, hey, Fisher, you have mentioned several times that you do a coin page with your grandkids. Do you buy anything special for these books? I can't seem to find anything ready-made and wanted some ideas. Thanks, Donna. (laughs) Well, this is one of those interesting things, Donna, that actually came out of the strange brain of David Allen Lambert. (laughs) And, And explain the background on that, David, how this happened. My daughter, Hannah 
has the middle name of May. That's her great-grandmother's middle name. And she asked about when was she born. And I said, well, she was born in 1896. And she goes, do we have anything? I said, well, our house is about that old, but hang on a second. And I went into my coins, and I had a 1896 Indian head penny. I said, here you go. This is as old as your great-grandmother. And she goes, wow, do you have any others? And I said, coins? And she goes, no, other relatives' coins. I'm like, relative coins. And that was the idea of <laughs> genealogical change for me. I've been collecting coins from every year of a direct ancestor's birth year. You can even do it for your siblings. You can do it for your cousins. And it makes a great stocking stuffer. Oh, yeah. And, and you think each year you could add more coins to it. So here's the thing. David came up with this idea, kind of mentioned it in passing on the show one week, and I thought, this is brilliant. So I went to a coin shop and I bought sheets of uh, little slots and plastic that you could put it's like 20 coins could fit in a sheet mm-hmm. and and you could put it in a three ring binder and then they have a little thing there called coin flips and these are for singular coins they have a flap on it and that flap can slide down into the slots that are in those sheets so i wound up putting the coins and the individual things hanging them off the front of these uh, slots on the coin sheets and then inside the slots on the coin sheets put a little picture like a an one inch by one inch picture of the ancestors and their dates and so the coin date matches the birth date of the ancestor a little hard sometimes finding them from uh, the old country right because for mm-hmm. instance uh, Sweden and Norway sometimes one was dominated by the king of the other and you can't find early coins from that time without paying, you know, $1,000 or something. Um, You can find replica coins, though, sometimes, too, for those uh, really valuable ones. For instance, the Continental Dollar, which was engraved by my fifth great-grandfather, Elisha Gallaudet. And so that is unique. Also, the pirate coin. There are coins that date back to the late 1600s you can get fairly inexpensively that can tie into your seafaring ancestors. So there's a lot of things you can do with this stuff. It really is amazing the way this has kind of taken off, because besides yourself, I've had a few people come up to me and say, I've got a great new collection. I collect coins and do genealogy because you mentioned it on Extreme Genes. Isn't that great? And my grandchildren have gone nuts for this thing, and I've made individual books just for them with not nearly as many ancestors in it, obviously, and mm-hmm. it, their immediate family. And you can put these things together kind of like you would put together any pedigree chart. You can choose how far back you want to go or how far current, or if you want to do it for children and, and just yourselves and your, your parents. And, you know, you can put it together any way you want. It's wide open. I think that's a great question, Donna, and I appreciate the fact that you remember it after all this time. We are still doing it, and we're still sharing coins with the grandkids, and they still love it when they come over to visit. And I will say, hey, guess what? We've got another coin. And then they fight over whose turn it is to put it in the book. And that's what makes it really <laughs> fun. Great. So tell your tell your daughter, David, she's a genius. Uh, I w- will definitely do that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've got an email here, David, from uh, Diana Greystone in Albany, Oregon. And she says, guys, I have an ancestor who is part of the Salem Witch Trials, Rebecca Nurse. I've read many books on the trials, but want to know if there are original records to be found out there. And how can I find them? Where are they? 
Well, that's a really good question because obviously any book you hope that they used primary source records to complete right. it, but a lot, a lot of books do things like footnotes. So I'll give you a little bit of an advance clue. So what you want to do is you want to not go to Massachusetts in this case, but online to University of Virginia. Huh. <laughs> they have on there the Salem Witch Trials Documentary Archive, and they have documents and published sources and everything you can imagine, and it's broken down right into those who were accused, and the, even the accusers have some, but mostly on the accused witches, the uh, 19 unfortunates that were either hanged or in case of George Jacobs pressed to death. Huh. But there's some great stuff, and there's also great records at the Massachusetts State Archives in Boston, Massachusetts. Those have been digitized in the Mass Archives collection by Family Search. So down in Virginia, these things are available online. Are they free? They are absolutely 101% free. Wow, and they're original documents. That's incredible. Hey, do you remember when we met Doris Kearns Goodwin? Yes. Back at Rootstech? Well, I saw her on the plane when I was flying back from Utah last month, and when I stopped to talk, I said, do you remember our common ancestor in the witchcraft trial? She goes, I surely do, Mary Perkins Bradbury. And I thought <laughs> wow. that it was the greatest thing that she actually remembered the person specifically, but I guess it meant a lot to her. And you have a connection with the witchcraft trials. Do you have a, an accused? Or well, an accused? it wasn't uh, with Salem. It was actually about 40 years earlier in Fairfield, Ooh. Connecticut. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. There was Susanna Lockwood. She was one of the accusers of a woman who wound up getting hanged. And it's, it's an amazing thing. How much detail is still out there? Because the Salem witch trials weren't the only ones. There were other no. places, other times. And this was kind of really the big culmination to an era. That was pretty much the end of it. We never heard any more about that. Although I will say this, David, in my research on some of my wife's ancestors who were in the Midwest in the mid-1800s, we see references to people who were suspected of being witches, but of course nobody would accuse them or, or kill them over that. And, of course, you have demonic possessions into the 20th century where people have had exorcisms to get out the spirits. When those big people that in the 17th century would have been accused of witchcraft, who knows? Yeah. Do you know what's funny? In Salem, they have the memorials to the witches, your granite blocks that are in a wall near the uh, Charter Street Cemetery. But the only real statue, per se is of Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? And you know, it was just a few years ago they absolutely were able to determine where the executions took place on this rock ledge behind a home in, in just a residential neighborhood now. And the story that one of the people in the neighborhood tells is that many years ago a car came through there and uh, wanted to see where this had all taken place turned out it was John Lennon and Yoko Ono drove through the neighborhood. Well, thank you so much for the question, Diana. And once again, if you have any questions for Ask Us Anything, you can always do just that at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, thanks so much, and we will talk to you again next week. All right. Talk to you then. Well, happy holidays, America. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you missed any of it, you can catch it again just by listening to the podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, and ExtremeGenes.com. Hey, talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.